0: You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Ayaz Hafiz, a programmer at rwx.com and one of the main contributors to the ROC programming language. We dive deep into a very specific topic in the ROC compiler, namely Lambda Set Defunctionalization, which is a concept we'll do our best to explain along the way, and then zoom out to talk about why more languages don't try to implement techniques like this in general. And now, Lambda Set Defunctionalization.
1: Ayaz, welcome back. Thanks for having me again, Richard. Good to see you. Good to hear your voice.
0: Yeah, you too. All right. So, Lambda sets. Okay. So, before we get into Lambda sets, I think it would be useful to give people a little bit of background on the motivation behind the problem, like why Lambda sets exist and what they're useful for. Let's say I have an array of closures. So, you can imagine two different closures. They both have the same type signature. Therefore, they're both eligible to be put into this same array. One of them captures a string and the other one captures two strings. So how do you know how big to make each array element given that they have these different sizes and you don't want to put it behind a pointer because that requires a heap allocation? So that sort of motivates the problem that lambda sets solve. If you can solve that problem of like how do you put two closures in the same array and they have different size captures but the same type How do you decide what size to make the array elements? I think if you can solve that, you pretty much have solved everything relating to this topic. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that sounds about right. So, just stepping back a bit, like looking at the existing landscape, there's sort of two ways you can look at functions, right? You know, if you come from C or C or Rust background or whatever, like you're already intimately familiar with the idea that captures, influence, the type of function, right? So, for example, in C or in Rust, if I define a lambda, each Lambda has a unique type. And each Lambda also has a, has a set of captures that are associated with its Lambda type. And this means that you can have unboxed closures in the way that we're describing. But the downside that you have is that two Lambdas are never the same, right? If I have two Lambdas that I define after each other, they'll always have unique types, even if their captures are the same and, and so forth. And the reason for this is mostly a practical one, because in those languages, you typically are not passing lambdas in the same location with different captures, or you're okay with boxing the lambda by boxing a heap allocation. You need you need to have two functions with the same input and output types but different different capture sets. In those kinds of languages, if you need to fall back to having functions with the same input and output types but different capture sets, you know, you do a heap allocation and on you go.
0: That sort of happens implicitly in most like garbage-collected languages, like in JavaScript, Haskell, OCaml, they will all just do a heap allocation for
1: right. with the, with the closure yeah. captures. But we want yeah. to try to be more efficient than that. Exactly. The other side of the spectrum is like exactly what you described, Richard. Like A lot of languages where the idea that you're capturing something at all isn't even made present to you, and you don't have to worry about it, like the JavaScripts and Haskells and Lisp's of this world, that's a huge ergonomic benefit, right? I can create a list of all these functions that behave in different ways but have the same input and output parameters and operate over them. A good example is a parser combinator, right? So, like, you have a list of parsing functions and you say, okay, I want to try to parse this thing this way. If that fails, let me try to parse it that way. If that fails, let me try to parse it this other way, right? right? And you can you can do this without a lot of ceremony saying, okay, well, I actually want to heap allocate this thing and this next thing and so forth. But what you lose is, is that you do have to do a heap allocation, which might be slow. So the idea, as, as you described, is like, well, how can we make this better? Because in principle, right, like what a compiler could be able to do is say, okay, well, I have these lambdas that have different types because their captures are different. But it's not for me to like, put them into a union. What you might know as a sum type or rock we call them tagged unions. Let's go to this parser combinator example. I have, uh, I have three different parser options. I can create a union type out of those parser options and say like, well, it's parser one and then parser two and parser three. And when I go to call function, let me switch over the tag of the union, see if it's parser one, parser two parser three. And if it's parser one, well, I know how to call parser one. I know like what captures it takes and how I can call it. Same thing with parser two and same thing with parser three, right? If you want to implement this in C++, you could do this. Man. Exactly, exactly yeah. the same way.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but importantly, so this is a behind the scenes thing, right? So it's like you have this list of closures, just call it a list of functions in rock, because, you know, functions in rock closures. But importantly, the compiler is realizing, okay, you actually are using three different capture sizes for these different things. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick the largest of those three sizes. And that's how big the whole thing is going to be. And we're going to represent it as a tagged union, aka algebraic data types, aka some types, aka discriminated unions, depending on your language. And so therefore, it's like every single entry in the list has an entry size that's big enough to handle the largest capture. And then they have a little discriminant tag or a little thing that tells you which one you've got. And that tells you both which function we're going to call and also which size of closure goes with that function. And so then we can just pass in the appropriate capture to the thing. And so each of those three entries in that list is going to have a different discriminant because they reference different functions and different capture sizes. But each element in the list has exactly the same size, which is whatever the biggest one of those is. And the compiler is doing all this behind the scenes so that it feels like it does in JavaScript and Haskell and OCaml and all that, where you don't have to have the size of the capture having anything to do with the type signature. It's just like, this is a function. I don't know. Who cares? And then the compiler is doing all this for you behind the scenes. Yeah, that's exactly right, Richard. Okay, cool. So, sounds trivial. why? <laughs> really easy, right? What what could be easier? But in practice, it turns out that implementing this in the compiler has been uh, challenging, shall we say. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, it's a challenging problem I think in large part because I think the approach that Rock takes is one that has not been studied very well in research languages or other mainstream languages. And so... It's a very ambitious approach, and when you don't know, like programming languages are hard, right? This is like, the key <laughs> insight. <laughs> like, that is like, that's part of the problem. <laughs> the key hypothesis to go on is that like implementing a compiler <laughs> is not easy, especially for <laughs> a non-trivial type system, right? Right. And once you have this insight, you realize that like if you don't have a grand theory about how all, all this should work, it's very difficult to make it work. And unfortunately, a few of us on on the current compiler development team are well-versed in in writing formal proofs for a lot of this. So we we have some intuition for like, okay, well, I think this should work this way, but then you go to implement it and you find out only after many users discover some wild emergent effects of how this works that, well, there's this edge case that you forgot, but it blows up the whole model. Okay, so to kind of ground the conversation and the difficulty, I think it's worth like looking at what other languages do and then we can kind of compare it to what broad theory. And sort of discuss some of the challenges there.
0: I like that idea. Briefly before we do that, so for a little bit more background, so we heard about this idea. The full name of it is polymorphic defunctionalization. So defunctionalization being the idea of like turning something that is conceptually into a closure into like an actual function. And polymorphic defunctionalization using lambda sets. And I believe, I don't know if he came up with it, but we we certainly heard about it from William Brandon, who sort of led the, the Morphic project. And Morphic has an implementation of this. Like there's like a Morphic language and there's a Morphic solver. And we're using the solver for some reference counting optimizations and stuff in place mutation optimization things. But Morphic the language does have a reference implementation of doing this. And now Morphic's a different language than Rock. So it's not like it's, you know, completely apples to apples. We can just be like, oh, well, we'll just copy that one function out of their code base and drop it into ours and job done. That would be a lot simpler, I guess. Theoretically, if that were possible, but it's not possible. So we have one reference implementation we have a theory that it theoretically should work and not have any problems. But what we don't have is an extensively studied thing where there's lots of different implementations we can look at that lots of other languages are using or formal proofs of like, you know, this thing has these properties and you have to make sure to do this or that, etc. We're kind of in the bleeding edge of doing a thing that's been like implemented once in a research language. And we're trying to do it. It's sort of like an industrial strength language. (laughs) So comparing it to what other languages do.
1: Yeah, so... The typical approach, as far as I'm aware, and this is the way that it's described in, I believe the full paper is called Better Defunctionalization with Bandasets or something of this form. It's in PLDI 2023, if you'd like to Google for it. Okay, just to back up, defunctionalization as an optimization is is not a new idea. Many languages, especially functional languages, have done it before, either Morphic or Rock. But the specific idea of trying to perform defunctionalization by the type system is sort of the, the key insight that William Brennan and his, his co-authors uh, describe in the LDI paper, at least I, b- I believe it to be.
0: And part of the difference there is that in the other languages, it's usually done, I believe, as an optimization pass later on. And it's like not all of your functions might get, some of your functions might not get defunctionalized, which has various implications. But in our case, we really want it to be every single one. I mean, a simplified way of explaining what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the best of both worlds of stack-allocated closures so we get the performance benefit of not having to have heap allocations while also not having to have that sort of leak into the type system and become visible to the user. We want the user to have the ergonomics of languages that heap-allocate their closures, but the performance of languages like C++ and Rust that do not heap-allocate their closures. That's what we're trying to do here.
1: Right, that's exactly right, Richard. Typically... This is done as a separate pass, like after your type checking phases and your monomorphization phases. And to clarify, by monomorphization, I mean generation of specific instances of functions for specialized types when those functions are generic. Right? So if I have a function id that goes from x to x, where x is a generic type, I can imagine I call this function with an int and with a string. And what I want to do is I want to try generate two functions, id int and id string. This is what we'll say is monomorphization. But at this point, mm-hmm. I don't care about the captures that ID might take. So typically you perform this phase, and then afterward, you perform a defunctionalization phase where you go through and you say, okay, what are the functions like in the typical approach? You say, okay, are there functions that I know that I can like defunctionalize eagerly here? And in the paper contributed by William Brandon and his co-authors, you go through and you do you perform a second type checking phase and you say, okay, let me go through and give types to all functions. And by doing so, I'll be able to see where there are sets of functions that form unions that I can then specialize to produce the defunctionalized form that we were talking about before, right? So now I go through and I say, let's say I have a function adder that takes it takes, a, it takes a function x and produces an output function, that takes, a function that, that, that takes a parameter y and adds x and y together. So this, out, this output function is going to capture this is value x, and what we're going to do at this point, is we're going to say, okay, this output function...
0: Just to make sure I understand, so this is a function that's like, give me an x and I will return a new function that adds x to my argument y. Right, exactly.
1: Right, so
0: it returns a yeah. function that has one argument, that argument's called y, and then it adds x to it. So it has to capture x.
1: Yeah. Let's call this output function, like, add with x. Right? So we sure. go through and we say, okay, I'm going to give add with x specific type. This type is a union, it's a union with what, with one element right now. One element is called add with x, and in its payload, it has the variable x or the type of the variable x, which let's say it's an int. You go through this and you do this, and maybe the place where you use add with x, it's also a position where you might instead use a function. Let's say like multiply with a and b. Multiply with a and b, like, is its own type, which. Is a singleton union, and the union consists of the name multiply with a and b, and the captures are a and b, which, let's say, are int and int again. And now we you can say is, well, okay, I have this function. It's produced by an if branch. One branch of the if branch goes to add with x, and the other branch of the if branch goes to multiply with a and b. So what's the type of this function that I get out? Well, it's going to be the union consisting of two elements, the first element of which is add with x, with that one int capture, and the second element is multiplied with A and B with two as jib captures.
0: Right, so this is another good, conditionals are another good example, like besides like an array of these things, where it's like, yeah, depending on which branch gets taken at runtime, you might have one or the other, but then we need to make sure that the size of the thing that's getting returned is big enough to accommodate the larger of those two. And also it has to have all the information about which one of the two actually ended up making it through, you know, which only is available at runtime. Right, Exactly.
1: And so, after you do this type checking procedure, you now have fully listed all the types of the functions in your program in the same way that you would have manually typed them if you wanted to do this explicit, make all your closures into a union and then unpack them and call them explicitly if you want to do this in a language like C or Rust or whatever that we described earlier on.
0: This is still at compile time, right? So, at compile time, we say, we looked at both branches and we're like, okay, either be this. Function, or it could be this other function, but those are the only two possibilities because we looked at the entire source code of both branches and we said, "All right, this branch could have call function A, and this branch could call function B, each with their own captures." And those are the only two possibilities. It's either like this whole conditional is either going to call A or it's going to call B with, with the associated captures. Right. Exactly. And we don't know which it'll be until runtime, but we do know at compile time that it's only those two possibilities.
1: Yep. And so now, instead of like this, this enables a bunch of optimizations, right? Like. Instead of having to have this opaque pointer to a function, well, you know exactly what the options for calling a function are statically, so you can have better inlining. At runtime, you may or may not have an advantage because it depends how much smarter your branch predictor is compared to your branch target predictor. Presumably, if switching on a key and then calling a function directly is faster than the reference a pointer and calling a function indirectly, then you have some wins as well. But the main benefit here is the further inlining optimizations that you get later on. Anyway, so once you have this pass, like, again, the program is fully formed. And now at this point, you still might have some generic functions, but you just do the monomorphization phase again, right? Because now you've explicitly typed everything once again. And so you can just go through and specialize it the same way that you did for, for when you did your first monomorphization pass, where we went through and we said, OK, this function ID, we need two versions of it, one for an int and one for a string. I'm skipping over some of the details here, but the, right. the key point is that like the functions become sort of native data types that are the same as like any other data type that you would have, except that they are functions.
0: So I guess for those who aren't familiar with like monomorphization, specialization, et cetera, I think a really simple example of this is like list.first, which is like give me the first element of the list. And in Rock, this is a polymorphic function, meaning you can give it any type of list. You don't have to give it like just a list of strings or just a list of integers or whatever. You can give it any different type of list you want, and it works on all of them. Again, there's a lot of languages that do this by having, I guess it's not actually an extra heap allocation, but they do this in a way where there's an extra conditional. Like list.first is one function. There's only one in the final output compiled program. And it sort of looks at some metadata about the list that it gets in as an argument to figure out, like how big are the elements, you know, how big is that first thing that I need to pull out of here, etc. That adds a bunch of extra conditionals and branch mispredictions and stuff. So usually the more efficient way, especially because it unlocks future optimizations, is monomorphization, aka specialization. Actually, Graydon Horror, who created Rust, mentioned that he likes to think of it as sort of like extra inlining, basically. But essentially the idea is, if I call list.first passing a list of strings, and then somewhere else in my program I call list.first passing a list of integers, that's actually going to create in the output compiled program two different specialized list-first implementations. One is list-first for strings, the other one is list-first for integers. And neither of them needs a conditional to look at what type of list they're receiving because they're both specialized for one particular type of list, like list of strings and the other one's list of integers. So there's definitely some code duplication there, which is a downside. So monomorphization usually tends to produce larger output binaries. But the upside is that you don't need this conditional to check what type of list you're going for. Each function is specialized and already knows exactly, like, I only will get called by a list of strings. The other one's like, I only will get called by a list of integers. Right. Now, you mentioned an important detail here, which is that the way Morphic does this defunctionalization is they do normal type checking and everything before type checking is the same as it would be in basically every language. They do normal type checking, then they do a separate pass that's called defunctionalization where they go through and compute all these sets to figure out and like unions and like all the conditional branches, okay, which ones could possibly be in there and so forth. And then afterwards, then they do monomorphization. Whereas what Rock does, and maybe, you know, we should get there later, but Rock combines two of those steps. Yeah, that's something, right, Richard? Which is one of the reasons we can't just look at their reference implementation and copy exactly what they did is that we're trying to avoid an extra pass for performance. And right. as a consequence yeah. of that, the implications of that that make our implementation different from theirs are unclear. Like we don't actually know if that, if it's safe to, to to eliminate that extra pass, or like what are the consequences of eliminating that
1: in these weird edge cases that we keep
0: running into as more and more people use the language.
1: Right. Another thing that's worth mentioning is that Rock supports Rock has a feature called abilities, which are you know very similar to type classes in most languages, and you have to integrate this with Lambda Set somehow because right. you can have an ability that returns a function, right? Any, anywhere in its position.
0: Brief background on ability. So an ability, like a, a really easy example of an ability is equals. You're like, I made this new type, like a data structure, like a, maybe a tree or a hash map or something, like some sort of custom collection, and I want to define how equals works on this. So ability is a Rock's way to say you sort of like associate a particular function with a particular type. So I say like, this function that I've written here, which takes two of my collections and returns a Boolean, that is going to be the equals function that gets used anytime somebody tries to use double equals on one of these collections. So it's associating a function with a type.
1: Yeah, you must account for this with the feature-like abilities because I can call an ability for some type. Encoding is a good example, right? So the way that encoding to JSON, for example, in ROC works is you say, all right, please generate me an encoder for this type. And an encoder is a function that takes some encoding format let's say JSON, it produces a list of serialized bytes. And the reason that you want to generate a function is because you want to compose these encoders, right? So if I have a record that I'm trying to encode, I can get an encoder for each subfield and I compose them all together to generate my, my JSON object. But this is kind of an aside. So the fact that you're returning a function means that the function has to play a part in defunctionalization, right? Because... It is a function of the program natural. Right. So one way you could do this is you could say, all right, well, let me have three passes. First, I'm going to have a pass where I go through and I resolve all the abilities using my program and I inline specific specialization for a type wherever its ability is called. Right. So if I call a two encoder for a string, well, I need a pass where I go through and I say, what's the specific function that I should call here and replace it with the generic two encoder call. So if I do this. Then you do your monomorphization pass, where you specialize everything in all types. And importantly, this also can include close to abilities, right? Because abilities can be generic like in places that go beyond just the type that they're specialized for, right? Right. So you do this monomorphization pass, then you do your defunctionalization pass. But now you have three passes, and it would be nice if you could collapse them into one. Right, because the more passes you have, the longer the builds take, generally speaking. Right. And it's also important for other reasons. Like, one thing that's like really nice in editor tooling, if you can do it, is when I click. Let, let's say I have like this to encoder function for a string, and let's say I click go to definition on to encoder. What would I prefer? Would I prefer like going to the generic to encoder definition that's like completely unimplemented, just the ability definition saying, well, you know, to implement encoding you need to implement this function signature, or would I prefer to go to the like the specific implementation of encoder for a string. And I think the vast majority of the time... Based on
0: the context, right?
1: Like in, based on the context, yeah.
0: Yeah, of course I prefer the other one, because it's like, well, right. once I've done that, I can always look at that implementation and then like, from there get to the generic ability one if I want to, but the reverse is not true.
1: Yeah, or at least you, know, you want the option to like, either go to a specific implementation or go to the declaration site.
0: Yeah. But, but if I go to the one on the string, right, or whatever, like I, I go to to encode and it shows me like, okay, here's where that's implemented. Like I can now see like that's, well, at any anyway, rate, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so you can get this again, if you have like a separate type checking phase and then this specialization phase that i described. But it would be really nice if you could do it one go, right? Because then like your error scoring is a bit faster. Yes. It would just be be nice to consolidate the two things, especially if it's not onerous. And so these are sort of the principles that we've been trying to take into account in our implementation.
0: Well, another relevant detail here is that the process of going through and doing all these lambda set calculations, like doing the unioning of these things and making the set of functions and captures and so forth, is like conceptually almost identical to the process of type unification that we do for our type checking and type inference anyway. So, combining those two into one pass logically seems like it would just be kind of a win win.
1: Yeah. And I think I still believe strongly that like doing it in one pass is the way to go. Because one way to look at this is also like the types that you associate with a function are a little bit different than normal types. You can treat them kind of disjointly, right? So, there's never a scenario in which like you try to compare a type visible to the user, the language, with the internal function type. And the reason for this is just because that those function types are only ever compared with themselves, right? And the user has no ability to change the function type because in Rock, we don't give you that capability. Like, if you say I have a function type, all you can say is here are the input types, here's an arrow, and here are the output types.
0: And right, the lambda says 100% function,
1: behind the scenes, it's not in user space at all. Exactly, yeah. And they only interact with each other. So from that perspective, it's very natural to do it and want to go because interoperate at all, like, why do I need two separate passes? I can just, you know, as I go through the program, I can just handle each one individually.
0: And I think you could make an argument that they need to be in separate passes if there was some information that, like, some some information ordering requirement where it's like the lambda sets, somehow, while you're doing the lambda set calculations, you need to have the type inference completed already at that point, because otherwise you'll get the wrong answer. But as far as we know, we don't know of any scenario where that would be true. It seems like the lambda sets are just like, you go through and you do this type unification pass to get all the the user visible types. And then if you're doing a separate pass for the lambda sets, you're doing the same pass. Like you're going through exact calculations and none of the lambda sets require information, as far as we know, to have been completed from that type unification pass. So it's like having them separate, we don't know of any specific benefits that would bring other than maybe making the code cleaner at the expense of making it run more slowly.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right,
0: Richard. Earlier about proofs, it would be nice to know if that was for sure true, as opposed to like, we know, true.
1: Yeah, I think this is the main problem that we have is that we don't know if this is actually true. And this is a big source of the attention for us. So... Part of the reason to understand why, why this is tricky is that, like, so in this approach where we treat lambda sets as types similar to how we treat normal types, and, you know, you solve them in the difficult type-checking check, phase, one issue that you have is that you can think of, of lambda sets as a very weak form of dependent types. By dependent types, I mean, like, they're dependent on, like, the runtime behavior of the program. Like, they're right. dependent on specific function names, Right? In a way yeah. that regular types aren't. Typically, the runtime values of your program do not leak into the types themselves. The types are sort of, you know, on a higher plane.
0: Well, at, at least in Rock. But if you have like types, groups, for rock, example, yeah, you can have nulls and stuff, and like conditionals where if one branch can possibly return a null, then like the type of the whole thing can change.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: But we don't have that in user space.
1: Yeah. And importantly, here, like, you can never actually embed a value in a type. Right in user space, but a lambda set does embed a value in its type, right? And the value that it embeds is the value of the function as part of the the lambda set union that you're trying to infer. It doesn't seem like it would be <laughs> all that you know make <laughs> things all that difficult. Yeah, but it does, especially like in in this like one pass model. And I'll give a couple reasons as to why, I and mean, we maybe can dive deeper into them. But I can't explain. I don't think it would be prudent of me to try to explain in great detail the examples because <laughs> it would just we'd be sitting here for thirty minutes, I'm not sure.
0: And we just got through the part where it's like, now if you've impressively managed to follow along all this, which I'd be very impressed if someone is able to follow along with all this, because there's a lot of background information we're kind of skipping over and we're <laughs> it's a complicated topic. Now we just got to the part where now you have all the background and we haven't
1: even gotten into the like specific problems that we're running into. <laughs> exactly. So one that I think is might be kind of natural to understand is that one issue that you have if you try to do a set inference in one pass during the regular phase is that, okay, I won't give a concrete example, but you can have function positions where the type of function, again, remember that this, this is a union of like potentially many functions. In that union, you might have the same function name, but with different type signatures or like different captures. And the sort of intuitive way to think about this is like pretend that you've monomorphized the program, and then you had a function position where you had two different versions of the monomorphized program being used at, at the same time. Now this might seem that that's not possible, because well, if I monomorphize, the input and output types be different, right? But the captures might be different, even if the input and output functions are input and output types are the same. Right. And so you can have cases where the lambda set is the same function name that appears in the union, but with different capture types. These need to be treated as different variants of the Lambda set. You cannot right. unify them because they are, in fact, different functions. or they will become different functions once you do the monomorphization piece.
0: Right. So the function name referring to basically, this is the non-monomorphized implementation of the function. And if they right. have the same quote-unquote function name, what that means is or maybe you could say like a function identifier or something like that. It means like these both have the same rock source code implementation. However, because they capture different things or potentially different sizes, they're going to get this sort of extra... Captures basically get added as like an extra argument to like a top-level... like We generate it as a top-level function that quote-unquote doesn't have a concept of a capture, and then we just stick an extra argument on there that's like, hey, here's your capture. And it's like, cool, now I can use this, in my implementation. And that's what the behind-the-scenes the compiler is doing. But if those two different capture arguments need to be of a different size then even if the source code implementation of those functions is absolutely identical, meaning they get the same like, function ID, if they capture different things of different sizes, then during monomorphization, they're going to need to get split off into two different implementations that are basically copy-pasted, except that last argument is going to be different between them, the capture argument.
1: That's definitely right, Richard. The trouble with this is that you must now implement at least a weak form of your monomorphization algorithm in your type checker, at least for lambda sets, because you yeah. cannot say typically if I have two unions and I'm trying to make them equal to each other, and one has like an A with an int and another has an A with a string, well, that's a type mismatch, right? Because like, yeah, what are you doing trying to compare <laughs> compare two unions that that aren't the same? But in this case, you can't do this because you actually know if you have a type mismatch like this, that actually know like there's no way that the program that this is a type error because it's based on the values and Values in the, in the program, so if it appears, it has to be correct. So there's a type yeah. error like this. You know it's actually two different functions that will be specialized to different things when you go to monophi- monomorphize your program. If you have to take this into account, and like in principle, you think okay, it's not too difficult. Like if this type mismatch, just like keep both of them. But in implementation. It's just been very hard for us to get this right. yeah. And the reasons are mostly due to ambient effects of how the unification algorithm works and how type variables are represented and these, these kinds of things. It'd be nice to have like a, a sound model around this, but we're not really sure about it yet.
0: Yeah. I mean, at one point we even talked about, hey, maybe we just need to just kind of give up and do heap allocated closures for a while because there's so much, error proneness and difficulty having to do with this model, but even just talking about it, it was sort of like there are so many performance assumptions that we rely on being able to have stack allocated closures, and it almost feels like the idea of kind of making a different language in some level because if we were to like turn that off because so many of the runtime performance characteristics would change, kind of where we ended up was like we've got to keep plowing ahead with lambda sets and figure it out somehow,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. another like issue that's kind of similar is the one around abilities. It's a very similar kind of thing. You can solve for a particular ability and know what type it should resolve to. But well, like you may or may not know the lambda sets at that point in time, concretely. It's safe to like propagates yeah. information somehow. But this is also difficult because again, like lambda sets are dependent on the values in the program. It's a lot of data dependencies to manage. And in practice this has just been very difficult. I think it's like the key insight though, I think it's doable. And I think you can make this correct and work as it should in one path. Yeah. We just may not have the expertise for it right now.
0: Now you do have a separate project called Core C-O-R, so it's like Rock spelled backwards. For those who aren't familiar with this, which is probably almost everyone, unless you're like working on Rock, you probably haven't heard of this. But this is basically something that IAZ made that's sort of like a very bare-bones implementation of certain parts of Rock's compiler written in OCaml rather than Rust, which is a lot faster to iterate in. And it's sort of a way to a testing ground for experimenting with like different ideas on how to implement certain parts of the compiler and as i recall i think you most recently just introduced lambda sets to that
1: yeah i'm trying to get lambda sets to work with it the project is trying to do several things there are other issues that we haven't discussed here i was trying to resolve like with a much simpler generation and unification algorithm but i also want to see if i can get a lambda model to work in this situation and try to see if we can resolve some of the issues that we have in a much simpler context. But I haven't been able to get line of sets to work in the model just yet, in part due to some of the issues that we're talking about here.
0: One thing I kind of wondered about, and one of the challenges with it is it would be like a lot of work and maybe might not pay off, is so we know that Morphic doesn't, as far as we know, their implementation works. We're not aware of any issues with their implementation. The idea would be to try to do something like a visitor pattern type of thing where you're like, let's implement it in a way where it can either be run as its own pass or be run in the same pass as the type unification. And then basically you just have two different callers, one of which is like, run both of these and every time you visit a node, do both of them, like one after the other. And the other one is like, first run all the type unification ones and then run all the lambda set ones. And then you could see if they got the same answers. And if the two pass one is correct, and the combined fast one is incorrect then that would give us some clues as to why or like what the difference is the challenge in that is that now we're taking something that's already hard to implement and making it even harder to implement <laughs> which is
1: not ideal i'm not sure i have like any <laughs> any great takeaways here but what i will say is that we're working pretty diligently on this problem and i think we have like quite a few ideas on how to resolve it even if we don't have the answers yet and in general, if this sounds interesting to you, we'd love to hear from you, um, especially if you have a background with formalizing formalizing type systems and compilers or anything like that.
0: Or you know anyone who, who might be interested in uh, <laughs> working on
1: this. Yeah, it'd be super valuable.
0: Worth noting, I mean, there's a lot of people doing advent of code in Rock right now, and they probably have no idea that this is an issue because for certain categories of programs, it doesn't even come up at all. Like the implementation that we have right now works fine. It's just once you start getting into certain Edge cases, especially around like recursive types that involve functions, that's when these things start to crop up and we start to run into like weird bug reports. Basically, of, of like, hey, I'm like getting this weird compiler error and I don't understand it, and it turns out, oh, it's a lambda set issue. That's a common refrain. It's like this is a lambda set problem. <laughs> I see that all the yeah. time in like <laughs> compiler development discussions. Yeah,
1: I think for rock's growth, there are other options as well, right? So one option that we've discussed is sort of pointing the lambda set experiment on hold. Uh, in favor of boxing closures to sort of unblock other features that are more user-facing and we believe might be more valuable to Rock at the moment. But eventually it'd be nice to to at least reconcile uh, and support the functionalization in the form that we described because of its guaranteed nature. Like in a functional language, you use closures everywhere. It'd be really nice to not have to pay the typical cost for closures that you do when you use them all over the place.
0: I don't know if you've thought about this. Have you considered trying to do the two-pass version in core and just see if you can get it to be correct and then as a separate step, see if you can go back and combine them?
1: Yeah, I mean, the two-pass version, I know it works. Yeah, I've done that. The combination piece is (laughs) is the difficult part. Yeah,
0: because I mean, that that might be if we get to the point where we're like, hey, we need to get something that works across the board and what are the trade-offs we're considering for that? One option might be we say, let's just plow ahead with the two-pass version. That has the downside of there's an extra pass in compile time, so all builds of Rock would be slower than they would need to be. But that would mean that the runtime characteristics would be as good as possible, and hopefully this entire category of bugs would disappear. And then that would sort of buy us a lot of time to, in the future, try to combine them again and see if we can get it right this time you know, without reintroducing all the bugs and so forth.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a possibility.
0: We'll have to see. Yeah. Part of the problem here is that, like, any of these projects is a big project. It's not right. like you're just like oh, yeah, just, exactly. Just sit down, just you know, crack your knuckles, crack open a energy drink, and just plow through. Uh, you know, rewriting the whole type checker to, to have two passes instead of one. What's the problem? Yeah, no, yeah. it's a big project.
1: <laughs> you know, like Rock is still a young language, but it's a mature project.
0: Yeah, it's a big. It's like three hundred thousand lines of
1: code. <laughs> yeah, so doing this kind of change is like something that <laughs> is going to take on the order of, of months. So you really want to have a solid foundation. And a solid plan before you go into it and just start writing code because you don't want to just like back out of it willy nilly. Right. Like As Boromir would months. say,
0: one does not simply rewrite defunctionalization to be two pass. Right. Exactly, Richard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that kind of covers what Lambda sets are and like the problem that they solve and some of the challenges that we've run into. I guess it's kind of hard to get into specifics, but we have run into some issues in the past that have gotten solved. Like I seem to remember that with like parser combinators, so a lot of people have been using this like parser library for advent of code because it's nice, it's ergonomic, it works well. But as I recall, there was some issue with, if you wrote a recursive parser with it, that it was like partially solved, like there was a bug and then it got partially fixed, but there's still some cases where you have to kind of use a workaround. Am I remembering that right? I think that sounds
1: about right. I think we we have a plan for how to fix that issue in general. That is a lambda set issue though, right? It's not not a lambda set issue, <laughs> so it's an issue that arises because of Rock's compilation model, and because the execution model treats lambda as defunctionalized. But it's not an issue to the implementation of lambda sets, I should say. It's more uh-huh. like a restriction in what the Rock language can support. I believe for like that issue specifically, the idea is that like you cannot make a generic function or something if it's not a synt- syntactic function. By syntactic function, I mean like it's like some function name equals something that looks exactly like a function and not right. calls does something else that recursive function.
0: So the difference being like x equals lambda as opposed to x equals if blah blah blah, then this one lambda else this other lambda.
1: Right, exactly. So yeah. adding that restriction, which we believe is reasonable and very natural, will resolve the issue. Sorry, that's specifically for recursive functions too.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's definitely an edge case thing. It's not something you'd run yeah. all the time with a language for sure. Yeah. Unless the main thing that you like to use with Rock is to write parser combinator libraries from scratch, which maybe a lot of people will <laughs> want to do that. Who knows?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's an edge case. But yeah, I mean, like that's the kind of thing that like you also like don't really realize until you've gone like pretty far down this route. Like it's kind of difficult to see ahead of time. I think at least for us, it has been difficult to see ahead of time that like oh well, actually, you know, if we compile things this way in these specific circumstances. The runtime model changes in such a way that like, you can't do X and Y. It's sort of difficult to know before someone tries to do X and Y, especially because this problem didn't, right. isn't very well known. But thankfully, I think for a lot of these things, we do have sort of easy ways to either restrict the user-facing capabilities or otherwise implement a fix that resolves them.
0: I think this is also an interesting example of two things that sort of maybe explain why more languages aren't attempting to do the things that we're doing in Rock. So one is that, like you said, languages are hard. It's like we have a big code base. It's very complicated. Even trying out new things is very complicated. And as we're noting here, even if something seems like it should work in theory, the implementation can run into a lot of problems. And we don't really know if the reason that we're running into these problems is that we're just making mistakes, which is entirely possible, or that there's some fundamental limitation That we're not aware of, that there's also no literature for. Like, one of my favorite things about the halting problem is that it tells you this is not possible. Like, you cannot solve this all the way. And you can get close to it ish. Like, you can, there's certain subsets of it that you can solve. You can give a, like, Rust does this. There's like certain ways you can call a function recursively that will, like, Rust will say, hey, no matter what happens in this function, every single branch recurses. So, this is definitely never going to terminate. So, you should probably change one of those branches <laughs> to make it have a, be a base case. Or, you know, like this loop will never exit. But the halting problem says it's not possible to guarantee that. It's not possible to guarantee that the compiler will catch all those things in the general case, which is a really useful thing to know as a compiler implementer because it's like, yeah, we shouldn't attempt that because we know it's impossible. And not knowing whether it's possible or not, like we, not knowing whether lambda set defunctionalization has to be two passes and just having a hypothesis that it's one pass means that In our very complicated implementation, whenever we run into a bug, we can't know if it's because it's actually impossible and we're trying to do an impossible thing because no one's proven it one way or the other. Or if it's just because we just made a vanilla ordinary mistake in our implementation and we just have no idea. Every time it happens, we have no idea whether it's because we're trying to do the impossible or it's because we just made a bug and we got to go figure out what the bug is. And also, by the way, these bugs take a super long time to track down. <laughs> They're not just yeah, like, oh, yeah. got another one. Cool, I'll just sit down, crack my knuckles and fix that one. <laughs> it's like, I think you mentioned like, it's like the first step to fixing one of these bugs is like you open up a notebook and spend more than an hour writing down context to just load everything into your brain. And then you can start working on it. And it's like usually multiple hours. They're really not easy to fix bugs.
1: Yeah, the way I describe it is like one of those bugs where like, it goes down like 10 layers every time I to do it. Which also makes you think, like, okay, there's got to be a simpler way. There's got to be like a simple right, model right. for all of this. It just sucks because we just don't know it.
0: <laughs> right, and especially because, I mean, I'm going to say this kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's like, it only takes like half an hour to explain it from scratch. But at the end of the day, like once you get the mental model, it's not that difficult, I don't think, for me to look at a piece of code and walk through and be able to tell you conceptually, what are the Lambda sets that are going to result from this? It's just not that conceptually difficult of a calculation to make. And yet in practice, for very simple examples, sure. But there are weird edge cases once you get into recursive calls and and this and that that end up making it a lot more complicated. Yeah, for sure. Which brings me back to, it's really easy for us to say and to put on our web page under the fast friendly functional under the fast section to explain like, hey, we stack allocate everything, including closures. And that's a selling point of the language. It's a a really nice performance benefit. And one might ask, hey, how come not every language does this? And this is part of the reason. It's not that easy to pull off if you also want to make your compiler fast, which we do. If we were okay with saying, hey, the compiler is going to take forever, but then it spits out really high performance code, we could do that. But then it's like at that point, you're like, well, why don't you just use Rust if you're okay with long compile times and you want to make your code run fast. Part of the point of Rock is to make it so that you can have a language where you have a really fast feedback loop. Your compile times are really fast. And also the runtime is really fast. And
1: turns out that's not easy. (laughs) Right. Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, I think we've kind of covered all we could cover about lambda sets without getting into like individual bugs or something, which <laughs> would be really time consuming. Did yeah. we leave anything out? I mean, at a high level on the topic,
1: I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, just this sounds interesting to you. Get us up.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like we we would love help with this. It's a tough problem, but it's one of those things where it's like it's hard because the payoff is great, and not because right. it's like we're just trying to do something silly. It's like no, this this would actually be pretty great to get right. So we want to get it right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. If anyone's interested in helping out, like getting involved, hit us up. Please hit, let us know. Just like, anyway, like tweet at Software Scripted or RT Feldman or go on Rock Zulip and, and just mention that you're interested in that. And yeah, we'd love to get more people involved. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Well, thanks for chatting about this. It's an interesting topic and I have heard people say on the podcast they like kind of being a fly on the wall for some of these in-depth compiler things. So if that's you, hopefully you enjoyed this deep dive into one very particular edge case of compilers
1: (laughs) yeah hope you all had a good time let us know your thoughts check out Rock for sure if you haven't already yeah alright thanks Ayaz yeah see you Richard take care